0: Good morning. Your bulletin says why he came. So for the next three and a half hours, we are going to (laughs) attend. All right, I won't keep you long. In order for us to answer that question today, we're going to look at the Gospel of John in the 10th chapter, and the sermon has been titled The Good Shepherd. The man John is a study in contrast. His gospel stands alone because he spends so much time in this epistle trying to convince the reader that Jesus is in fact the Messiah, that Jesus is God. And each chapter points to irrefutable evidence to that fact. He's a study in contrast because he uses these theological themes contrasting one against the other, like life and death, light and darkness, belief and unbelief, truth and falsehood, love and hate. It's a family gospel, and what I mean by that is that Matthew was written primarily for the Jews and Mark and Luke to the Gentiles, but John is writing to Christ church. We know that he was a disciple, and he later became an apostle, selected, hand-picked, so to speak, by Jesus himself. That's why we don't have the office of apostle today. You had to be hand-picked by Jesus. It was a gift to the early church, the apostles. And here's what we know about him. He was involved in a family business, Fisherman, in Galilee. The sentence structure that he uses oftentimes suggests that he had more than a casual understanding or basic understanding of rabbinic law that most Jewish men were expected to have. And so the fact that he was a fisherman should in no way suggest that he was ignorant or common. I think his writings suggest to the contrary. He was part of the inner circle of the disciples. John and his brother and Peter were with Jesus at the Transfiguration. They were there in the Garden of Gethsemane, and when Jesus was on the cross, it's to John that he commends his mother Mary to John. We also know that Jesus gave him a nickname. John and his brother had a nickname. They were called the Sons of Thunder. Now nicknames oftentimes reveal a lot about a person's personality. Jesus gave Cephas his nickname of Peter. Today, that would be someone we'd probably call them the Rock or Rocky. Judas was nicknamed Red. Timothy was Didymus, which means twin. He probably was a twin. If we met someone today whose nickname was Gabby, that probably means they talk a lot. If their nickname was Road Runner, that probably means they were fast. If their nickname was Big Head, well, you get the idea. How would you earn the moniker Sons of Thunder? Now, there is an account in Luke where John and his brother James wanted to call down fire from heaven on a Samaritan village because they hadn't provided housing for Jesus as he was on his way to Jerusalem. So we know that John had a temper. We also know that he was ambitious. In fact, John and James approached their mother and asked them to ask Jesus, could they have the two highest positions in God's kingdom? He was very competitive and achievement-oriented. But as we read his epistles, we see that he was deeply affected by his relationship with Jesus. When he wrote this epistle... He was sensitive, he was loving, and he was in fact reflecting two of the attributes of Jesus. Note the contrast. When he writes the book of Revelation, when he's exiled on the Isle of Patmos, he speaks of love. John's heart had been tenderized by years of faithful ministry. Turn, if you would please, to our text. We're in John. In the Bibles in the seat back in front of you, it's page 896. Interesting thing about this passage, there really is no break between chapter 9 and chapter 10. It's really the same day. The events that are going on in chapter 9 are what is happening in chapter 10. And what has happened in chapter 9, it's during the Feast of Dedication, That's what's known as uh, Hanukkah today. But during the Feast of Dedication, Jesus and the disciples are there in Jerusalem, and he comes across this gentleman, this beggar, who's been blind since birth, never been able to see. And so Jesus takes a little spit and a little dust, and he gives him some eyes, tells him to go wash, and he can see. Now, that's a miracle enough for me. You can give somebody new eyes with a little dust and some spit. (laughs) The guy has never been able to see and now he can see. They take him to the Pharisees and the Pharisees want to interrogate him. Who did this? how they do it? It can't be from God. If Jesus had anything to do with it, we we don't believe it. He's not from God. Tell us again how it happened. He says, look, I've told you several times, you don't believe me, that's your business. I couldn't see, he told me what to do, now I can see. The Pharisees are so intent on not believing the miracle, they go find his parents. Is this your son who couldn't see? Yeah. How's he able to see now? We don't know, ask him. This goes back and forth. Finally, they throw this blind man who was blind, throw him out because he won't deny Jesus, say that Jesus is a sinner. And that brings us then to chapter 10. And we have this wonderful word picture of the shepherd and the sheep and the sheep fold. Jesus' teaching here in chapter 10 about the shepherd herding in Israel. Multiple shepherds would use what's called a fold and at night they would bring their sheep into that fold for protection and then during the day they would call them out. We'll talk more about that in a moment. In John's gospel we find clear evidence of the rejection of Jesus by his own people. Jesus told them that he was a good shepherd who would die for his sheep the Jews realizing that what Jesus was really claiming is that he was deity, that he was God, and so they sought to kill him. And we see this clear pattern over and over again. The difference is, with every claim that Jesus made, he had things to back them up. You see, it's one thing to claim to be God, and then you never do anything, but he's healing all manner of diseases. It's Jesus, you remember, who raises Lazarus from the dead. It's Jesus who restored sight to this blind beggar who never had eyes. Every claim he made, he's able to back up. He was acclaimed on Palm Sunday, and that just made the Jewish leaders that much more angry. Interesting though, Jesus doesn't condemn them, but he does warn them. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke shall condemn him at the last day." That's John 10, 48. So in John chapter 10, we see this contrast now between the good shepherd and thieves and robbers. The Jewish leaders who had rejected Jesus in favor of their own legalistic interpretation of the law and their own selfish ambition are the thieves and the robbers." The practical application for us today is that false teachers, false doctrine, those that reject the truth of the word of God, and Satan himself, our enemy, are the thieves and the robbers. Look again at the text. We'll start at verse 8. All who came before me are thieves And robbers but the sheep do not listen to them I am the door if anyone enters by me he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy I came that they may have life and have it abundantly thieves steal Robbers commit violence, that's the difference. See, a thief is sneaky, stealthy. A thief wants to get in undetected. He wants to take what is valuable before you even know it's missing. Robbers are violent. They don't care if you see them. They don't care if you can identify them. They want what you have and they're gonna take it by any means necessary. He tells us that the thief, our enemy, Satan, comes to steal, he comes to kill, he comes to destroy. Well, what exactly is it that he wants to steal, you may ask? Does our enemy want to steal our gold and our silver, our Lexus, our iPad? I don't think so. The enemy of God, the enemy that's against God's truth and his word, those that would reject the truth for selfish gain. What is it that they want to steal? Beloved, it's your eternal significance. The enemy comes to steal your eternal significance. You see, only what we do for Christ will last. And in our contemporary times, one of the tactics that Satan uses to steal our eternal significance is simply to keep us busy. I'm old enough to remember a time when most retailers closed on Sundays. Today, many stores are open on Sundays and some even 24 hours. And so for those employees, they don't have the opportunity to come to church, to assemble together, to pray, to exercise their spiritual gifts with one another because they are busy with the demands of their employment. As a young boy, I remember we had a television. We were blessed with a television. At that time, it was a luxury item, not a necessity. And the family would gather together for a particular program, whether it was Ed Sullivan or Ted Mack's original Amateur Hour or the Three Stooges. You would gather for your favorite program. You watched your program, and then you turned the TV off. We had four channels and television actually went off. This concludes our broadcast day. The national anthem would play, and that would be it. The Next thing you'd hear was (laughs) click, you turn it off. Today, it's on 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, bombarding us with information, data, music, movies, opinions, so much to see, so little time. I'm out here now, so I might as well finish this. Cell phones. Studies show that the average American checks his or her cell phone every 12 minutes. That means you've checked your cell phone about four times since you've been sitting here. Over three and a half hours of every day are spent on smart devices. Now, I want you to hear me. Certainly, we can consecrate the technology. We can use these devices for God's kingdom. Many of you have Bibles on your phones, and praise God, and devotional materials. But I wonder, perhaps maybe, You might just wanna consider when you come into God's house, into the house of worship, just turning it off so that you can give God that undivided 50 minutes of your time. It's something for you to consider. It's certainly not mandated, but as we think about how the technology intrudes into our lives, how it demands our time, by keeping us busy, by keeping us distracted. It steals from us the time that we need and require to study God's word, to meditate on his word, to reflect on his word, to listen to what God has to say to us and time to pray. Too busy to serve, you see. I'd love to help with Awana and some are blasted. Right now I'm just really too busy. Things are really busy at work, maybe next year. You know, I've always wanted to go to a community, but a little busy right now. Lots of go, yeah, hold that thought. I have a phone call. Our enemy wants to sideline you, put you on the bench, so that you aren't using your spiritual gifts to glorify God and to edify others. He wants to steal your eternal significance. When our men participate in our children's ministry, they set an example before those children of what a godly man is like through their service. When they share the gospel, they're planting the seed of truth for that generation. Our enemy doesn't want you talking about your faith. The enemy doesn't want you using your spiritual gifts. And the principal tactic that he's using today to steal your significance is to keep you busy. The thief comes to steal and to kill. Hmm. Yeah, he wants to kill your joy, but to be true to the text, he wants to kill you. Our enemy is not a mischievous imp who just wants to make your life miserable to the contrary, beloved. He wants to kill you. That's why the word reminds us to be sober-minded, to be watchful. Your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he will devour. And therein lies the problem, I think, when we try to rationalize sin. When we try to predict the consequences of disobedience, we think, well, well, what's the worst thing that could happen? If I go where I shouldn't go, if I do what I shouldn't do, if I look at what I shouldn't look, how bad can it get? And we try to predict the consequences of that disobedience. Far too many lives have been dissipated by addiction and disobedience because what started off to be entertainment and fun enslaves their lives and ultimately shortens their life. Our enemy comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. But what is it that he wants to destroy interesting word here this word destroy really means to render useless what does he want to destroy two things your reputation is one reputations are fragile things as a young lawyer, I had to go to the Superior Court to file my appearance many, 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 many years ago. And I had a chance to see this elderly lawyer try this case. It was a man who was accused of drunk driving and I sat for a while and I listened to what was, in my opinion, one of the best cross-examinations I've ever heard. Bit by bit, He created a reasonable doubt, and his client got acquitted. I thought, who is this guy? That was brilliant. Flash forward a few years, and I hear the story of how that same lawyer who had a drinking problem was sitting in a jury trial, and he fell asleep at counsel table. The judge declared a mistrial, dismissed everybody, and they left him in the courtroom there snoring. No one remembered the 40 plus years that he'd been an outstanding lawyer. Whenever his name would come up, it would always be about that drunk that fell asleep at council table. Reputations, beloved, are fragile. The reputation of the church is fragile. Our reputations are fragile and our enemy wants to destroy them. What's the other thing he wants to destroy? Relationships. Father against son. Mother against daughter. Congregant against congregant. Our culture is fragmented and polarized. And right now, the clashes with people is reaching a boiling point in our society. Our enemy wants to sow discord, certainly within the body of Christ, to sow confusion and ignorance and objections and prejudice and temptations and deceitfulness and having us coming up with all kinds of distinctives of why we are different from one another. This artificial distinctiveness reminds me of the Titanic in a lot of ways. There was first class, and there was upper class, and there was middle class, and there was steerage, and there was all these things to distinguish people. But beloved, when that great ship went down and they posted those names in Whitehall, people only fell into one of two categories. You were either saved or you were lost. Our enemy wants to divide us. To have us at each other's throats. He wants to destroy relationships. We look again at the text. The term that's often used here is anthropomorphic. This use of sheep and a shepherd to illustrate this point. In the Old Testament, scriptures often portray a shepherd and his sheep. It's used to illustrate the relationship between God and his people. That's why the psalmist in the 23rd Psalm says, The Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 95, For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, Psalm 100 3 Know that the Lord he is God. It is he who has made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Isaiah 40:11 He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms; he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are his young. The prophet Jeremiah doesn't pull any punches when he's describing the false teachers, the false shepherds, those who have perverted their spiritual roles. He says, woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering my sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. In Israel, the sheep weren't herded like In America or in Europe with dogs, or they weren't herded behind with people with sticks who were threatening. Rather, in Israel, the shepherd leads the sheep and the sheep follow. The shepherd includes the sheep, he cares for his sheep, he knows the sheep by name, he protects his sheep, he guides. His sheep. We come back to this text, and you'll note that he says that the sheep are in a fold. Well, we talked about that earlier, that the fold is a pen where many shepherds would take all of their sheep at night, and one by one, he would lower his staff and he would examine his sheep for any wounds or problems. And then he'd raise his staff and let them in. And then he'd lower his staff and examine the next one. And then all the sheep would be mingled and there's a porter there at the door. But what exactly is this fold? Scripture can answer that for us. If we go to Ezekiel 34, The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up. They strayed, you have not brought them back. The lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains, over every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or to seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord." I'll go over to verse 20. "'Therefore,' says the Lord God to them, Behold, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you push with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd. My servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them, and I am the Lord, and I have spoken. Now this is Ezekiel. David, King David, has long since been gone. So who is this referring to? This is Jesus. Jesus from the line of David. Jesus will come and the fold here represents the Jewish people. What he is saying is that I am going to pull the Jewish people out of the aridity of of Judaism and take them to the green pasture of salvation and reconciliation with God. He is calling out the Jews. Calling his own. We know this to be true because... In 1016, if we go back to our principal text, if you look at verse 16, it says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Who are these other sheep? That's us. That's the Gentiles. I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Why he came, verse nine tells us, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find Pasture. Do you have joy in your life? I'm not talking about happiness. Now happiness is always dependent upon a thing. You get a raise, you're happy. You got to file your taxes, you're not happy. You get a new car, you're happy. You get that first ding on it, you're not happy. Joy isn't dependent upon circumstances or things. And the word says that these things I have spoken to you that your joy may be full, that you may have joy. When Jesus talks about an abundant life here, he's not talking about material possessions because those things don't really bring joy. Although God is merciful and generous, What he's really talking about is our eternal life and our fellowship with God. This is not a prosperity gospel. People can have joy and contentment and not have a six-figure income or the latest car. The abundant life, beloved, is a life that's free from guilt and shame because God Almighty himself has put your sins as far as the east is from the west, The abundant life is a life that's enabled by the Holy Spirit, who will give us results beyond our skills if we will yield ourselves to him. The abundant life enables us to embrace each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. The abundant life frees us from the penalty of sin. It frees us from the power of sin in our life, and one day it will free us from the very presence of sin. The Bible says that whatever you do, you do for the glory of God. What wonderful freedom we have. That's the in and the out. You see, I don't have to stay in one place to worship or serve God. I can do it here in this church. I can do it at the bus stop. I can do it at my job or at school or on the corner or at the grocery store or in the restaurant as I come in and as I come out. No matter your profession, No matter your occupation, God has what you need. You're not convinced? You're an architect? He's the creator and the originator. You're a baker? He's the bread of life. You're a biologist? He is life. You're a champion? He's the victor. Are you a construction worker? Well, he's the chief. Cornerstone. Are you a doctor? Meet the great physician. Are you an executive? He's the head of the church. You a florist? He's the lily of the valley and the rose of Sharon. You a geologist? He's the rock of ages. A historian? He's the ancient of days. An inventor? He's the creator of all things. You a jeweler? He is the precious stone. You a king? He's the crown. Are you a lawyer? He's the advocate. You a merchant? he's the pearl of great price. You're a pharmacist, he's the bomb of Gilead. You're royalty, meet the king of kings and lord of lords, Jesus. Why he came? To fulfill the prophecy that he would. If God said he was going to do it, he did it. God keeps his promises. He said he would bring the great shepherd to pull his people out. He came to keep the prophecy. Why did he come? To lay down his life for his sheep. Why he came? To be the door, the access to God Almighty. Why did he come to claim ownership? He is the good shepherd, he is the great shepherd and Christ alone can make these claims. He knows the sheep by name. And the miracle of regeneration, beloved, is that we know his voice. Who are you following? I'm asking you plain. Who are you following? Is it whatever feels right in your own mind? You do what you wanna do whenever you wanna do it because you want to do it? Are you chasing money and material possessions? Who are you following? Has your life been dissipated by disobedience? If so, repent, repent. Have you let things encroach upon your time where you don't have time for the Lord, you don't have time to serve him beloved? Repent. Or maybe you're sitting here today and you're not really sure where you are with Jesus. I'm glad you're here. The evidence is clear. The testimonies are true. God loves you. He loves you so much, in fact, that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Jesus saves. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the truth that's revealed therein. It's easy for us to shake our heads and say, well, they they saw so many signs and wonders, how could they not believe? But we know that hearts are hard and unless you open the eyes and ears, none will see or hear. So would you now, Lord, take the little that I have and you multiply it for your glory. Speak to those hearts now, even now, and if, as people are confessing their sins, Lord, of how we haven't been good stewards of the time, how we have allowed things into our lives that are stealing our spiritual significance, would you restore and renew even now? For those who are seeking the truth, would you speak to their hearts now, Father, and do what only you can do. Enable, encourage, equip, convict, call, save. We'll always be quick to give you the honor, to give you the credit, to give you the glory. Now we pray in the matchless name of Yeshua, Jesus. And amen.